You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Save big money on everything for your next project at Menards. Spring is here making it the perfect time for outdoor projects. Suncast storage sheds are an excellent solution for protecting outdoor lawn and gardening tools. They're easy to assemble, and the all-weather construction provides water resistance and UV protection. Save big on Suncast storage sheds. View our selection of Suncast products today in-store and on Menards.com. Save big money at this episode is brought to you by our Patreon members. Thank you so much. Join our Patreon for extra episodes, interviews, extra content, and to help support the podcast and help us continue to do the work we do. Go to patreon.com slash ancienthistoryfangirl to learn more. Pickled and cannibalized in that order. I'm Jen McMenemy. And I'm Jenny Williamson. And this is Ancient History Fangirl, the Christmas Demons Edition. No, scratch that. The Christmas Cannibals Edition. Christmas Cannibals! It's my favorite topic. It's the holiday where you eat your babies. I mean, to be fair, we did start with Saturnalia, which is about a cannibal eating his babies. Child cannibalism is, in fact, the reason for the season. I mean, is it though? <laughs> yes! It is factually true that is in the history. I mean, it is in the lore, but I think we might have moved beyond the cannibalism. That's the hope. Well, babies are tender and mild. <laughs> I'm so sorry that I told her the lyrics to um, Silent Night. I already know the lyrics to Silent Night. I've been in like choirs since high school. Yeah, but I was the one who flagged that lyric to her just in a text chat and she just won't let it go. That's because you're just as cannibal minded as me, Jen. No, that's because. No, that's. You're pretending to be above it all for the audience, but you're not. That's because I was rage watching because I do this um, all, all of December, a Hallmark movie, and they just kept singing Silent Night over and over again. And then I just kept hearing that line and I was like. Baby Jesus, so tender and mild. How does it go? It's holy infant, so tender and mild. Holy infant, so tender and mild. Nope, that's not even the tune. Jenny, it's holy infant, so tender and mild. Okay, we both have absolutely no ability to sing on key. That's what's happening, but also at least I'm closer in tune. <laughs> I'm on my second whiskey and hot cocoa. <laughs> and you know what I did, because it's that time of year. I busted out the white rabbits. <laughs> oh, yeah. So you must excuse us for our off-key singing and egregious forgetting of the lyrics. But the important thing is that Jesus, as a baby, was in fact very tender. Yeah, I mean, that's actually in the song. Stop. No one is eating baby. Well, I mean kind of 
See? See? Well, I'm just thinking about like, you know, actually in religion, in the Catholic religion, there is a history when you talk about taking communion, about eating Jesus's body. Anyway, I want to move on. Transubstantiation is all about the cannibalism. It kind of is. But anyway, please can we move on? That's what the episode is about. So we're not moving on. We're dwelling on this for roughly an hour at least. (laughs) In my opinion, this is the most wonderful time of the year besides the summer because it's been officially confirmed that I am solar powered. Like a lizard. Yes. (laughs) This is the time of the year where I get to search into the depths of lore and history to find something wild about the winter holidays, mostly Christmas at the, at the moment. And this year did not disappoint, did it, Jenny? I feel like I just appreciate Christmas more now that I know that the heart of Christmas is, the real spirit of Christmas is child cannibalism. I'm one of those people for whom Christmas, I grew up celebrating Christmas, and it has become a difficult holiday for me because of, you know, various family stuff that you probably know if you've been listening to this podcast, but I don't necessarily want to go into now. However, it just gives a whole fresh new life to the holiday, and I just can't wait to share it with everybody I know. (laughs) Absolutely. And as Jenny said, Christmas is a tough time of year for a lot of people. And that's why when I started the podcast and I started digging into the research, I really liked coming up with some wild creatures or folk beliefs around this year that weren't the traditional stuff or the traditional stuff that we know of in America. Yeah, I would say they are the traditional stuff, but not necessarily the traditional stuff that Jen and I grew up with. They're, they're not the traditional secular things that a lot of people who secularly celebrate Christmas know, at least not in, in America and not outside of different regions in Italy, Bavaria, Germany, uh, Scandinavia. I've, I've been all over Europe, really. It really warms my heart to know that people have been creating demons and monsters around the winter holidays, be they solstice or Christmas or various other winter holidays, since the dawn of time. (laughs) And this year, we're focusing on two different figures, monsters, cannibals, (laughs) if you will, from Christmas folklore, particularly from the folklore of France and Germany. Because it turns out that for as long as people have been celebrating Christmas, they've been afraid of cannibalism. Or, counterpoint, they've been celebrating cannibalism. Uh, no. I'm gonna have to go with no. I don't think anyone is celebrating cannibalism except Jenny. So, as always, strap in, pour yourself your favorite holiday beverage, and get ready for a wild ride into the dark side of Christmas. In order to really understand the Christmas cannibals that we're going to discuss this episode, you have to understand a little more about the legend of Santa Claus. Because all of these cannibals or demons or monsters, take your pick, are directly related to an older version of Father Christmas. And that version of Santa Claus stretches all the way back to the early Christian martyr and saint, Saint Nicholas. Saint Nicholas of Myra is thought to be the archetype for our modern Santa Claus. The historical Saint Nicholas is believed to have been an early bishop of Greek descent born in Myra to wealthy Greek Christian parents. Myra during this time was part of the Eastern Roman Empire and inhabited by Greeks and Romans as well as other people. All of the sources that refer to St. Nicholas were written long after his death and are apocryphal. However, it is mostly agreed that St. Nicholas was a wealthy Greek Christian in an area that is now part of modern-day Turkey, but it would have been inhabited by Anatolian Greek people at the time. St. Nicholas was thought to have lived from March 15th, 270 AD to December 6th, 343 AD. We have very precise dates him. However, 
Jen says that these dates are a little fuzzy as they come down to us through Christian sources with a distinct perspective, shall we say. Yeah, I mean, it's very contradictory in some places. Like some places will be like, we don't exactly know the dates, but we think these are the dates because he appears in different places. But those places are mainly Christian sources. His birthday appears to be the Ides of March. Coincidence? I think not. Oh, I wasn't even going there, but now I can't unsee it. Don't say his name yet. I'm, I'm not saying anything. St. Nicholas, the inspiration for Santa Claus, was, as we've mentioned, a bishop who spent much of his life wandering and performing good deeds and miracles. Little is known about his early life, and many of the details we get about his life in general are written long after his death. This is because he lived during a very turbulent time to be a Christian. During this period of time, the Roman Empire was going through a lot of turmoil. Because at this point in time, Christianity was beginning to take a real stronghold on the Roman Empire. Christians and non-Christians were in conflict. And the Christians suffered persecution from the Roman Emperor at the time. So, this is a quote from Britannica.com. Quote, Nicholas's, meaning St. Nicholas's, existence is not attested by any historical document, so nothing certain is known of his life except that he was probably Bishop of Myra in the 4th century. According to tradition, he was born in the ancient Lycaean seaport of Patara and, when young, traveled to Palestine and Egypt. He became Bishop of Myra soon after returning to Lycaea. He was imprisoned and likely tortured during the persecution of Christians by the Roman Emperor Diocletian, but was released under the rule of Constantine the Great. He may have attended the First Council of Nicaea in 325, where he allegedly struck the heretic Arius in his face, and that is a whole—the Council of Nicaea is a whole thing in Christian history that I don't want to get into, but I do love the idea that he slapped Arius in the face. <laughs> Guess he was an Arian Christian. <laughs> Alaric of the Visigoths. I know. And the Council of Nicaea has like, there's a Nicene Creed. There's like a lot of stuff to talk to. I, I love these, in, these interesting tidbits, but it's a whole thing in history that we just don't have time for. And we will get there maybe one day and talk about it because it's a crazy soap opera. There's a whole history of ancient um, early Christianity that occurs during the time of Alaric of the Visigoths, which I just adroitly or perhaps not adroitly at all sidestepped in my book because I was like, not going down that rabbit hole. Not relevant to what I'm doing. You can criticize me about that if you like, but that's what I did. So anyway, St. Nicholas was a fascinating character. He had the kinds of adventures that Julius Caesar would admire. Oh, I see we're, we're naming him now. That's one. Two more and he shows up. Look out. And he was beloved. St. Nicholas. Not the other one. He'd be so mad to hear me call him the other one. St. Nicholas was known as the Wonder Worker because of all the marvels he allegedly worked during his lifetime. And this was not according to historical sources. I don't think he shows up in historical sources. I think this was just in the Christian hagiography, right, Jen? I think so, but it's difficult because this is when Christian history and history become like kind of put together. You know what I mean? Where your Christian monk is showing a lot and so it's tough. We might be able to tell the difference on a deep dive, but we have not done that deep dive. So so here are some of the miracles, and they are very short because here's the thing. I'm planning at some point in time to cover St. Nicholas because after I did this episode, I was like, this is wild and I need to do a deep dive. I don't think it'll be next Christmas. I have something already picked out for that, but I will probably get there and I got to save some mysteries. So, allegedly, he calmed a raging sea and stopped a storm, and it, I just, how? But also, I'm here for that superpower. Controls the weather. That explains the whole flying around in the snow in the sleigh situation. Okay, I posit you this. Is 
Santa Claus and the old man of Crater Lake. Are they one and the same? Oh, well, the old man doesn't have a beard, or does he? Or does he? (laughs) He saved three innocent sailors from execution. And again, I support saving the wrongfully accused and convicted from executions. Good job. And he chopped down a tree that was allegedly possessed by a demon. Now, this sounds incredibly suspect to me. A demon tree? That kind of feels a little bit like more of a demonization of the people who worship trees, i.e. other pagan cultures, because a lot of different pagan cultures had trees that were sacred to them. To me, this feels a little bit like a Christian monk is showing. I could be wrong. I couldn't find much more about this demon tree. I really wanted to dig into it, but it was a little bit of a rabbit hole that I didn't find anything that could tell me one way or another what he was talking about. So those are a few of his flashy works, but two of his most famous ones were actually total unknowns to Jen, and also me, to both of us. So this is a quote from an article on National Geographic called From St. Nicholas to Santa Claus, The Surprising Origins of Kris Kringle by Brian Handwerk. Quote, Nicholas was neither fat nor jolly, but developed a reputation as a fiery, wiry, and defiant defender of church doctrine during the Great Persecution in 303, when Bibles were burned and priests made to renounce Christianity or face execution. Nicholas defied these edicts and spent years in prison before the Roman Emperor Constantine ended Christian persecution in 313 with the Edict of Milan. Nicholas's fame lived long after his death on December 6th in the mid-4th century, around 343, because he was associated with many miracles, and reverence for him continues to this day, independent of his Christmas connection. He is the protector of many types of people, from orphans to sailors to prisoners. Nicholas rose to prominence among the saints because he was the patron of so many groups. By around 1200 AD, explained University of Manitoba historian Jerry Bowler, author of Santa Claus, a biography, He became known as a patron of children and magical gift bringer because of two great stories from his life. In the better known tale, three young girls are saved from a life of prostitution when young Bishop Nicholas secretly delivers three bags of gold to their indebted father, which can be used for their dowries. The other story is not so well known now, but was enormously well known in the Middle Ages, Bowler said. Nicholas entered an inn whose keeper had just murdered three boys and pickled their disemboweled bodies in basement barrels. This is awesome. This is this is exactly the tea I want for Christmas. This is the content that Jenny came here for. It's the content I crave. The bishop not only sensed the crime, but resurrected the victims as well. That's one of the things that made him the patron saint of children, is that he continually saves children from child prostitution and child cannibalism. I bet you didn't know it was going to take that turn, did you? But now you do. So I, I bet all of you, including me, didn't know those Santa Claus facts. And I brought them up because they play right into the mythology of the two Christmas cannibals we're going to talk about. Because Santa Claus, who was known for his gift giving, or Santa Claus, St. Nicholas, I'm going to use them and Father Christmas interchangeably. I mean, there are distinct little differences throughout the time period, but they're all pretty much the same. Anyway. St. Nicholas is the patron saint of children, and obviously he's the guy we associate with Christmas. But he's also the patron saint of a ton of other things, and I just wanted to, like, give you some. So this is a quote from bostoncollege.edu. It's a great list of what he was the patron saint of. Quote, St. Nicholas is the patron saint of sailors, merchants, archers, repentant thieves, children, brewers, pawnbrokers, and students in various cities and countries around Europe. His reputation evolved among the faithful, 
as was common for early Christian saints, and his legendary habit of secret gift-giving gave rise to the traditional model of Santa Claus, or Saint Nick, through Sinterklaas. I like that he's the patron saint of repentant thieves. What if I don't repent? From my thievery. Oh, well, the unrepentant thieves don't need a saint because they have a god, and that god is Hermes, right? Or Mercury. I'm sure there are many other trickster gods who are out there, but I'm positive Hermes is like the patron god of thieves. (laughs) So, Santa, or Saint Nicholas, is the originator of Secret Santa Gifts and your office exchange party. I needed this elaborated. I wrote a note in the original draft of this. Can we explain the Secret Santa Gifts? What is going on? (laughs) So, because Jenny needed this elaborated and didn't understand Santa Claus or secret gifts. I know, I understand that. I just don't understand the context of ancient Santa Claus, ancient St. Nicholas in in the 300s AD. So, St. Nicholas gave gifts in secret, exactly like we do today in Secret Santa. Those gifts were of a trinket nature. St. Nicholas's legend literally stems from that one epic story of him going to the house of the three young girls who were going to be sold into sex work by their father. To be fair, that isn't trinkets. That's like a, a substantial gift. That was a substantial gift. Most of the gifts that were then later said to be given were of a more of a trinkety nature. So this is a quote from stnicholascenter.org. Quote, 15th century Swiss writer Haspinian wrote, It was the custom for parents on the vigil of St. Nicholas to convey secretly presents of various kinds to their little sons and daughters who were taught to believe that they owed them to the kindness of St. Nicholas and his train, who, going up and down the towns and villages, came in at the windows, though they were shut, and distributed them. This custom originated from the legendary account of the saint having given portions to three daughters of a poor citizen whose necessities had driven him to an intention of prostituting them. Okay, so the secret Santa gift was just the prostitution dowries. I believe, as far as I can find, I believe so. I know there are legends of St. Nicholas and Sinterklaas, like wandering around giving presents out throughout the winter to children, more of like what we see now as the legend changed from the saint to, you know, St. Nicholas to Sinterklaas to Father Christmas to Santa Claus throughout the ages. Right, but that's like the legend, as opposed to like the original story, which is about this prostitution gift situation. As far as I can see, I didn't see anything else, and this quote seems to attribute it to that being the case. So uh, I'm going to go with that. I could be wrong, but that is what this quote seems to say. Yeah, so just in case you are confused, as I might be, the original St. Nicholas in the 300s AD allegedly gave some money to an indebted father to keep his daughters out of sex slavery and give them dowries. And that evolved over time into people having a folk legend about Santa Claus giving trinket gifts to poor children, right? To good poor children, yes. It goes from these poor innocents to just being if the children are good. And I think the thing that we're going to come across a lot in this episode and why I'm making this distinction is Father Christmas, St. Nicholas, Sinterklaas, Santa Claus, he's here to reward children who are good children who are bad, well, Father Christmas has someone who travels with him who's here to take care of those children. So St. Nicholas's gifts, the legend about that after his death, began to take on a token appeal. And again, this is a quote from stnicholascenter.org, quote, The custom in 16th century Germany, as described by Thomas Neo-Georgis, as follows, St. Nicholas money, this is kind of like, I guess, a, a lyric poem of some kind, St. Nicholas, money used to give to maidens secretly, 
who, that he still may use his wanted liberality, the mothers all their children on the eve do cause to fast, and when they every one at night in senseless sleep are cast, both apples, nuts, and pears they bring, and other things besides, as caps and shoes and petticoats, which secretly they hide. And in the morning found, they say, that this St. Nicholas brought. That's it. So, Nicholas' primary virtue came to be seen as generosity to children. I like that how this poem kind of connects the um, gifts to maidens with gifts to children. These maidens also were probably children. So, his primary virtue, I think I'm still on this quote, came to be seen as generosity to children rooted in the stories of rescuing the desperate maidens with gold for their dowries and of saving three children or schoolboys from an evil fate of being pickled and cannibalized in that order. Nuns in France began leaving treats on St. Nicholas Eve, December 5th, for the small children of poor families. St. Nicholas's gifts were usually good things to eat. Apples, oranges, nuts, and eventually cookies and sweets, which is really interesting because now, at least in American tradition, we leave cookies out for Santa Claus. So it's like it's reversed. And you know, apples, oranges, and nuts were the kind of things you would have at this point in time from the harvest or maybe being imported. They were things that lasted a long time. So they were really important during this time. Well, oranges in particular weren't available in all parts of Europe. I mean, they were an imported item that would have been a luxury item. And I will tell you something else that's interesting. We'll talk about what was happening during 14th century, or it's, a, it's actually a lot of the stuff is in the 1500s. But during the 1300s and 1400s, that's when the dwellings in particularly Bavaria and Germany changed from having chimneys like the older, more ancient chimneys to having the chimneys like we think of today. So like during that time period, your chimney probably would have looked more akin to something you would have seen out of like more of, I think, like a hole in the middle of the... Uh, of the roof? Yeah. And that's why in that quote, he's coming at the windows. But during this period in time, the chimneys start to shift to what we think of now as the modern chimney that uh, Father Christmas comes down. Sometimes in some of these thatched houses, like the smoke just filters up through the thatch and there isn't a hole. That is how the legend of St. Nicholas grew. He was all about the love and saving children from cannibals and the sex trade. I mean, in general, the history of the saint is glowing and... That's what you want from the history of a saint, right? A glowing, righteous life. A guy who wants to save children from horrors. I'm here for this. Yeah, that sounds about right. Well, now is when we turn to the other side of St. Nicholas, to the entourage, the train he traveled with, and how their stories and lives paralleled his and added to his greatness. <laughs> Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. I'm Helena Bonham Carter. And for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes. A new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk takers. 
What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. Hello everyone, Stakuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. And first, we're going to look into the story of Père Foutard. Père Foutard, and I, I can, you know, speak French with a French accent, sort of, but it would probably come out a bit tortured, so I'm just going to say it with an, an American accent. Forgive me if you speak French. So Père Foutard is also known as the French Christmas cannibal. He's particularly infamous in the French region of Lorraine. Père Foutard is a fascinating character, kind of a cross between Krampus and our next cannibal, Hans Tropp. He doesn't appear as a demonic goat. Instead, he looks like a very scraggly man in a black hood and cloak. Yeah, he, he's not like a Krampus. He's not a whole demon. He has a long gray beard and a cloaked face, kind of giving off Odin vibes, potentially Gandalf vibes. <laughs> I mean, yeah, he kind of is. <laughs> like a disheveled Gandalf. He carries a whip, a hammer, or branches, so BDSM Gandalf. <laughs> he wears big black boots or potentially clogs and loves to make a lot of noise. He stomps around. That's part of his thing. He, in general, can be heard coming from a mile away. And like the Krampus, he also has a sack or a hood ready to use on the worst of the worst children. He will kidnap the worst children and presumably take them back to hell or... Santa's workshop, and make dinner out of them. This is a quote from FrenchMoments.eu from an article called Père Foutard, Unraveling the Dark Side of Christmas in France, about Père Foutard's possible origins. Quote, Two legends claim to explain the origin of Père Foutard in Lorraine. One of those is the Three Little Gleaners. So these are the three little children who got lost in the forest and found hospitality in the house of a wicked butcher. Once asleep, the butcher cut them into little cubes and put them in the salt cellar. I mean, this is just the St. Nicholas story, right? <laughs> Essentially, yeah. Years later, St. Nicholas, our buddy, visited the butcher and made him confess to this despicable act. Since then, the butcher has been obliged to assist St. Nicholas on his rounds and has become the boogeyman we know today as Père Foutard. The second myth has to do with the effigy of Charles V in Metz. So, the city of Lorraine lays claim to the birth of the boogeyman through a historical fact dating back to 1552. In that year, Charles V himself laid siege to Metz. To mock the emperor, the Tanner's Guild came up with the idea of creating a grotesque effigy of the emperor with a whip. When Metz was liberated the following year, the mannequin was brought out again to mark the Feast of St. Nicholas. The people of Metz readily adopted this ridiculous, quote, Botok Tanner, who accompanied the holy man. Can we just pause? <laughs> so the Tanner's Guild decided to create an effigy of the emperor with a whip, who became known as the Botok Tanner. 
And he accompanied the effigy of St. Nicholas. People found themselves in need to really just say, fuck you, (laughs) to Charles V. And I really love that because as we go on in this episode, there's a lot of times when people are just saying, fuck you to someone (laughs) because they're being unreasonable and it becomes part of the Christmas mythology and it's just wild. Yeah, there's a lot of like Christmas aggro. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So in other places, I've seen the tale of Pere Futard and the butcher children told a little differently. Sometimes the story goes that Pere Futard butchered three little boys and that St. Nicholas was visiting him. But it wasn't years in the future. It was not long after the boys were murdered. And St. Nicholas resurrected the butchered boys and forced Pere Futard to repent by becoming part of St. Nicholas's entourage. Pretty much it's the same story, except in this version, the little boys get to live. And there are two reasons why that version would have been more palatable for people, because it would have appealed to a wider audience, right? Reason number one, child cannibalism is dark and depressing. Being able to save children from death and resurrect them while keeping them safe from a cannibal... Well, that gives a saint a major halo, right? A real love from both the Christians and the community because most people agree that child cannibalism is not a good thing. So one thing we want to remind you of here is that Pere Futard kidnaps the worst behaved children and either takes them back to hell or, key detail, back to Santa's workshop where he eats them for dinner. It's weird and it's dark and maybe it means Santa himself is a cannibal or potentially condones cannibalism. I mean, clearly, Santa is condoning this behavior if he has this guy in his entourage and allows him to eat babies in his workshop. I mean, is Santa participating in this feast of bad children? What about all those non-union elves in his non-union toy workshop? Is this like the company holiday party dinner? Like, what is happening right now? That is the question. Because given what we know about Christmas's ancient origins, stretching all the way back to Saturn, the baby-eating god, who is one of the reasons for the season... This does make a kind of really weird sense. Santa punishes the child cannibal by getting him to work for him. And he also gets to reap the benefits of said work. Non-union, of course. I'm not going to weigh in on whether or not Santa hires non-union workers. Listen, I want Santa to bring me some nice toys this year. So I'm just going to be, I'm hedging my bets here. I see. I've given up on that. I'm a naughty child. (laughs) I just don't fit in the sack. (laughs) (laughs) I just think you're not as tender and mild anymore. You might be stringy. (laughs) I'm rough and stringy at this point. So I fear nothing. (laughs) So as I mentioned, Santa also gets to reap the benefits of this work, uh, the disciplining of kids, which is a huge check. And also maybe he shares in that Christmas roast. Am I, have I maybe gone too far in my hypothesis? Or have I stumbled onto something? You decide. Now that you know the cannibalism roots of Santa Claus, you can't unsee it, can you? I mean, listen, we're not going to do the whole Santa Satan thing. I'm not doing it. I didn't say anything about Satan. I'm just saying Santa Claus himself and cannibalism. I mean, the association is right there. So as I mentioned, this doomed soul has a crucial part to play in Santa's entourage. His job is to mete out punishment. If you were a lazy or naughty child, you would get whipped, hit, or threatened by this creepy Christmas cannibal. Pere Futard became inexorably linked to Father Christmas. He was the dark side, the bad guy, the punisher, and Father Christmas was the light. Father Christmas handed out sweets and toys. Pere Futard 
handed out beatings, and sometimes, if you were, you know, not too bad, just on on the list really t- towards the bottom, he would give you vegetables, lumps of coal, and other practical gifts. It's kind of a weird scene. So both Santa and Père Futard arrived in town on the same night, the Feast of St. Nicholas, which was December 6th. There would be a parade with bells and music to welcome Father Christmas, and behind Father Christmas trails Père Futard. Much like Krampus on this night, he appears unchained. He is unleashed to mete out justice on the children of the towns he visits. And this really strikes me as a parallel to Krampus. You know, if you listen to our Krampus episode, which I believe we recently re-released, this is kind of similar to how Krampus is portrayed in these sort of holiday parades. Yeah, I mean, sometimes Père Futard and the next cannibal we're going to talk about, they're conflated with Krampus or they're linked all together as being the same being or entity. And they're not. Folklorically, they're different and they have slightly different stories. But if you're seeing a parallel, that parallel is deliberate. It has to do with how Christianity spread, how the folklore spread, and how the different regions adapted to the lore around St. Nicholas and also their own local legends. It seems like Krampus is the lighter version, right? Because Krampus doesn't eat the children. Or does he? Uh, yeah, he does. (laughs) Oh, he does? Oh, I'm sorry. Forget I said that. So, let's hope that Père Futard, your... Christmas demon is feeling merciful and gives you all the veggies you need to make a hearty stew. Otherwise, you might just turn out to be the stew for the evening. Our second Christmas cannibal comes to us from both France and Germany. As with a lot of Christmas cannibals that I've uncovered, the story that we're going to tell you isn't ancient. It actually begins in the 1400s. Hans Trapp, is known by another name, the Christmas Scarecrow. And if you're thinking Christmas and cannibal scarecrows shouldn't go together, Hans Trapp is here to tell you that you are very wrong. Cannibal Scarecrow. Like, it just keeps getting better. Right? So, Hans Trapp's story is infamous in the French regions of Lorraine and Alsace. He's also been known to make appearances in Germany and Bavaria. Hans Trapp is a weird and fascinating Christmas icon, and his story does not disappoint. So, let's get down to it. According to legend, Hans Trapp was a wealthy man. This story goes that he lived during the 1400s and rose to power as a rich, merciless, and evil man. He was feared by the people of Alsace, but material wealth, power, and riches weren't enough for him. Oh no, he turned to witchcraft and started making deals with devils. As you do. As one does, (laughs) and started making deals with devils at the crossroads. And this went down about as well as you'd expect. I mean, I think it sounds great. But the church found out about these uh, satanical deals and excommunicated Hans Trapp. They stripped him of his land, his wealth, and his power and banished him from his hometown in Alsace. And as you might have guessed, Hans Trapp was not happy about this turn of events. Forced to flee Alsace, He moved his home to the mountains of Bavaria. And we all know that the best Christmas demons and baddies come from Bavaria. Am I right? Krampus. Hans Trapp found life in Bavaria difficult, and he decided he was going to go full-on Dark Lord. He devoted all of his time to his occult studies. He really went down that rabbit hole. And the further and further he went down the rabbit hole, according to the lore, the more and more he got a hankering to eat human flesh. The folklore says that his turn to cannibalism was tied to his occult studies. But, well, we can get into my theories on this in a little bit, because I have thoughts. Because 
Once again, this feels like a bit of Christian Monk is showing to me, but we'll get into it. I mean, again, we don't, I don't approve of cannibalism, but you know. You would think you don't have to say it, but on this podcast, you do. <laughs> yeah, but I also think that you don't have to worship the occult to potentially be a cannibal. That's all I'm going to say. They don't necessarily go together. It's just in this, in this instance, they are. That's a complete coincidence. According to the folklore. So Hans Trapp decided he was going to get him some sweet, sweet human meat. And his plan was pretty simple. Pick a likely enough victim, i.e. a child, who could be easily overpowered and pounce on them. And that is just what he did. He dressed up as a scarecrow, trying to make himself look as innocuous as possible. <laughs> this is like... <laughs> it's such a waggy plan, right? <laughs> I know. Okay. It's like, scarecrows aren't creepy enough. Wait for it. <laughs> I know. <laughs> so he hid out in a field and waited for the shepherd's 10-year-old son to walk past. It's a lot of 10-year-olds who get killed. And I think that, that later on when I talk about the history of what I think is going on here, just remember the number 10 or the age 10. Anyway, when this 10-year-old boy walked past... Hans the Scarecrow leapt into action. He attacked the child, stabbing him viciously with a sharpened stick. He then dragged the child's lifeless corpse back to his home where he butchered the body and prepared to eat it. But just as he was about to take his first bite of sweet, sweet human meat, a bolt of divine lightning struck Hans' trap and he died. Boom! You would think that the bolt of lightning would strike him before he killed the child, but no! Hans Trapp became the boogeyman of Christmas. His legend grew and grew. French and German parents whispered to their children to be good or else the Christmas scarecrow would come for them and eat them up. I just feel like the compounded trauma of various Christmas cannibals in history is a real thing. Like, I do feel like we have gone to this place in our, you know, secular celebration of Christmas where it is very light and good things happen and Elf on the Shelf and Santa Con, Drunk Santas, and we're like, oh, that's like the worst of it. And it's like, when we peel back the veneer a little more, we're like, oh, no. <laughs> oh, wait, give me cannibals. Give me demons. Give me goddesses in the wild hunt. Like, it gets even weirder and darker the further back you go. Absolutely true. And here's where the story takes on a familiar theme. Hans Trapp, after he's, I guess, dead, is offered the chance at redemption if he joins Father Christmas or St. Nicholas or Santa's entourage. He takes on a role similar to the Krampus or Père Futard. However, his style is all his own. As you would imagine, he looks like a scarecrow, he dresses like a scarecrow, he accompanies St. Nicholas, and it is his job to mete out punishment to naughty children. Again, the details here are a little sketchy. I can't really figure out what he does, Besides March and Santa's parade, and I guess still carry bad kids off to the forest and eat them? Like, it feels as if this whole thing is tacitly a promotion of child cannibalism, as far as I can see. On Santa's part, I mean, Santa is really condoning and enabling this. Right? So what do I think is really going on here? Well, I have some thoughts. First, I want to talk a little bit about the history of Hans Trapp, because it is very likely that Hans Trapp is based on a real person whose name was Hans von Trotha. Pele, Hawaiian goddess of volcanoes, fire, and rebirth. Maeve, Celtic warrior queen and nemesis of heroes. Kiyohime, Japanese fire-breathing snake demon. Pesta, Norwegian spirit of the Black Death. 
Our book, Women of Myth, is a fascinating look at women and femme characters in world mythology, including goddesses, heroines, and monsters, with captivating illustrations by Ringo Award-nominated artist Sarah Richard. It's the perfect gift for the mythology lover in your life, including yourself. Find Women of Myth wherever books are sold. So, the story of Hans von Trotha, um, and I'm quoting here from a Ripley's article called The Terrible Tale of Hans Trop the Christmas Scarecrow. Quote, Hans von Trotha was a knight who lived from 1450 to 1503. He commanded two castles in the Palatine, the French-German territory, but became embroiled in an argument with the church over the property in one of them. The abbot would not concede certain properties to von Trotha, so the embittered knight stopped the supply of water to the nearby town of Weisenberg with a dam. In retaliation, the abbot had the dam destroyed, which flooded the villagers' homes and businesses. The dispute continued until, just as with Hans Trapp, the knight was summoned by the Pope himself and excommunicated. While there is no record of von Trotha turning to cannibalism and hunting children while dressed as a scarecrow, what we know of Hans von Trotha's life is also extraordinary. Even the emperor's intervention wasn't enough to put a stop to the knight's battle with the abbot of Weissenberg Abbey, which is exactly why Pope Innocent VIII came into the picture in the first place. On his summoning to successor Alexander VI's papal court, von Trotha refused to attend. Instead, he sent a letter to the Pope which expounded on von Trotha's faith while accusing the Pope of all manner of impure acts. Even excommunicated, I'm still in the quote, the wily von Trotha did well for himself. Serving the French royal court, he was given the Chevalier d'Or by King Louis XII, and on his death, all charges against him were reversed and forgiven. Something of his notoriety lived on, though, and not only in Hans Trapp. Local legends also referred to him as the Black Knight, a formidable specter that was also sometimes said to accompany Santa Claus and punish children who were unworthy of gifts. Okay, so I wanted to include this quite long quote because sometimes history is just gossip and good tea, right? And that's exactly what we're seeing here. Hans von Trotha was a real knight who got into a fight with the local abbot. They were fighting over land because, of course, nothing says out of touch and rich people's problems like a land dispute between the church and a wealthy knight. Jen informed me of this, and I did not know this. This was a period in history where all the land was either controlled by wealthy landowners like knights or the church. So if you were like, a you know, just a common person, you were probably a serf working for either one of those, the church or this wealthy landowner. Like that, those were the people who owned all the land, right? Absolutely. And we're going to talk about the issues around that a little bit later in the episode, because there's a lot of tension here. And what you're seeing with like Hans von Trotha and the church, like there was not everyone was thrilled with the inroads or becoming now a part of their land being owned by the church or whatever else, because these people were tied to their land for a series of reasons that we're going to talk about. Many had to do with stuff happening in the 1300s in the Little Ice Age uh, and then through the Black Death, which really created people locked in a place because they had no freedom of movements. So let's get back to what these two wealthy people decided to do. How do they settle their problems? Hans chose violence, and builds a dam to block the neighboring town from getting water, which is kind of a dick move, Hans. But what does the abbot do to retaliate? Well, he has that dam destroyed. Now, the abbot clearly didn't care about the townspeople either, dick move abbot, because once the dam was destroyed, 
the neighboring town was flooded, ruining homes and businesses. And potentially drowning some people. Yeah, I mean, can we just kick both of these guys out and get someone else in to run this area of the world? Because in this moment, they both seem like they're the assholes. Yeah, I think this is an everyone's the asshole situation here. But also, these are your two options, like this asshole or this other asshole. That's the reality of this time period. (laughs) Yeah, and, you know, this legend, we're going to talk about it in a little bit. This legend is super important because it's showing you what the common people thought about the people in charge. And when we unpack what was going on in history, why Hans is so scary, why all these things are so important really becomes clearer. But we're going to get there. Anyway, so the Pope decides to weigh in on this whole debacle. He calls Hans to Rome and personally has him excommunicated. Of course, Hans is very salty about all this and refuses to attend the meeting. Instead, he sends along an epic burn letter about the Pope in question accusing the Pope of all kinds of lewd, immoral, and vile acts because Hans had the receipts. Also, this was the Borgia Pope, so I guess everybody had the receipts. Everybody had the receipts, and we're going to tell you why, because the Borgia Pope was up to no fucking good. He is some of the best tea in history. So because we don't hang out in this time period that much, I'm just going to give you a quick overview of Pope Alexander VI. So the Borgias are one of the most infamous families in history, They had a reputation for murder, poisoning, crime, scheming, and just in general being bosses. Bosses of what? Crime. Crime bosses. Mostly that. And Alexander rose all the way to the top. There was actually a really good TV show called The Borgias with Jeremy Irons as the Pope, and he was great, and you should watch it. I think it's on Netflix, I think. I think it was originally on Showtime. It might be on Netflix now. It was, I think it was by the guy who did Rome or something like, or the Tudors. It was either the guy by the guy who did Rome or the Tudors. It kind of paints Pope Alexander VI as like a like an early mob boss. And I'm like, I don't think you're wrong with that. We might be taking a lot of cues from that show in this description. I mean, I didn't have time to do a deep dive into all of the like tea around the Borgias. So I'm giving you sort of like the TLDR. There's obviously more nuances and complexities here, and I do think in some ways Lucretia gets a bad rap that's maybe undeserved, but that's for another episode. Other podcasts have covered this in more depth where this is more their their time period in history. The Pontifex podcast has covered this, I'm sure. They look at all the popes, and our friends over at the Queen's podcast, I think, have looked at this too. So there are good places to go to. Anyway, so Alexander VI rose all the way to the top. He was supposed to, ideally, live a chaste and celibate life as a priest and then a bishop and then a cardinal and then finally pope. He was not supposed to bone. That's the key thing. Key point of the job description. However, it turns out he had a slew of mistresses. It was a wide shoes with Alexander VI. (laughs) He had six children, including the infamous Lucretia Borgia, who may have been maligned by history. So when Hans laid out all of the Pope's moral failings in his letter, well, he had a lot of moral failings to draw on. A lot of it had to do with boning, but some of it had to do with criming. Because Alexander was not a good guy. Not ideal in terms of what a priest should be. And we know this because this is from a bohemian humanist poet whose name I I cannot pronounce. I'm sorry. I'm I'm like three drinks in, but his last name appears to be Lobkovic. (laughs) He's a bohemian humanist poet who lived from 1461 to 1510 AD and who wrote a very hostile fight in words epitaph about Alexander in Latin. And bear with me because this is some wild shit. Quote, one who hated peace and quiet 
and who loved battle, strife, murder, and treason, lies in this urn as all people rejoice. Alexander, thy shepherd, a greatest Rome, a greatest Rome, O greatest Rome, ye prelates of Erebus, close the doors of heaven and prohibit this soul from your realm. If it enters Styx, it will disrupt the peace of Avernus, and if it seeks heaven, it will set the inhabitants of the sky against each other. Good lord. So, like, <laughs> where was this found? Was this just emblazoned on his crematory urn? Well, I have no idea. Jenny asked me and I tried to trace this down and literally I found this on Wikipedia and that was the context I got and that was it and I loved it because it's so wild. <laughs> so here's what I'm going to tell you. It says lies in this urn as all, all peoples rejoice. So possible it is actually on his urn. Now what I'm going to say about this is the Pope who came after Alexander VI was not a fan of him. He actually demanded not to sleep in any of the chambers that the Borgias had desecrated. So he wouldn't even sleep in those chambers. He like made his own place because he was so morally outraged by the Borgia Pope. It's possible this was on his urn. Like it does say emblazoned on the on this urn. So I don't know. Based on how his successor felt about him, I think it might have been put on his urn because his successor was not a fan. But we're just guessing here. So it's very clear that Pope Alexander was not beloved by the people or his other clergymen. In fact, his behavior very much went noticed by others around him. But he had power. He also was known to silence his enemies. So during his life, well, things just sort of had a way of falling into place in such a manner that favored him. And now we go back to Hans von Trotha. After his dust up with the Pope, Von Trotha decided to try his hand at the French court, where he did very well for himself. He was praised for his diplomatic skills, particularly during the Italian wars. Hans von Trotha earned himself a title. Jenny, pronounce it for me. Chevalier d'Or, the Knight of Gold, I suppose. The Knight of Gold. It was given to him by Louis XII, and he rehabbed his image and regained his respect, particularly the respect of the French court. After von Trotha died, all the charges against him were reversed. I guess he was re-communicated? I don't know how that works. Like, he was unexcommunicated. So does that mean you're re-communicated? I don't know what that means. And he lived on in legend, not just as Hans Trapp, but as the Black Knight, a spectral knight said to follow Santa Claus around and punish children who are unworthy of gifts. And I have to say, that sounds about right to me. It seems that von Trotha was a pretty religious and serious guy. He fought over land with the church because he felt he was in the right, and he got excommunicated, and during said excommunication, he took that time to call out church hypocrisy. So really, it doesn't surprise me that he'd spend his afterlife accompanying St. Nicholas and punishing children who don't deserve their toys. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> right? Seems like a thing he might do. <laughs> It, it just seemed rather petty when but, you put it that way. <laughs> but also, he kind of was. <laughs> also, he may have been dressed like a scarecrow and may have been eating children. Don't look too close at this one, kids. Don't look too close. He's either dressed as a scarecrow or a black knight. And, I mean, let's be honest. The fact that he had all the tea on the boards of hope and is like, oh, you're excommunicating me? I'm taking this moment to put all of my feels about you into public like record right now. Go. <laughs> Somehow I think it was the Borgia Pope who started these scurrilous rumors about the cannibalistic scarecrow. Total agree. So, 
I wanted to just take a minute to add in another member of Santa's entourage. There are many more. We talked about Perkta last year. This one is a little different. Uh, this member of Santa's entourage is one who appears just after Hans Trapp in St. Nicholas's Parade. And this is the Christ Kindle. The Christ Kindle is an angelic creature said to perform miracles on Christmas Eve. She is part of St. Nicholas's entourage and is supposed to appear after Hans Trapp as a beacon of hope and light after the terror and fear of the cannibal Christmas scarecrow. She's there to be like, it's okay, kids. <laughs> you made it. He didn't take you off and eat you. <laughs> You've been good. <laughs> to those who haven't been eaten, <laughs> which is an L of you, let's be clear. <laughs> no, let's be clear. Some of you did get eaten or beaten with branches or whatever. Some of you are traumatized. <laughs> no, no, no. All of you are traumatized. <laughs> like, it's the Middle Ages. I mean, that's just a constant state of existence. So let's be honest here. The more we look at it, the more Santa's entourage looks an awful lot like the Wild Hunt, Odin's Wild Hunt. We covered this in Yule because this ragtag bunch of demons, cannibals, angels, gods, and monsters that Father Christmas has just collected feel ancient. He's kind of inherited something that's very old, right? Even if their stories are modern, Almost as if those more modern folk legends are hearkening back to a lost time, a lost legend, a lost mythology. It's like we take Santa Claus and we paste him on top of Odin. It's like a copy on top of something else. It's like they're trying to like meld everything together. Yeah, it's like a Santa, it's Santa Claus sanitized mask and underneath it is something deeper and older and scarier. And it's absolutely no surprise that these stories all come together at the time that Christianity was beginning to make inroads into the more remote areas of Europe. The Feast of St. Nicholas, with its parades and pageantry, with its villains and heroes, all have a throwback to the ancient wild hunt, to the epic Yule celebrations. And in our opinion, these are the beginnings of the two being married into one holiday, Christmas. <laughs> And while all of this might be true, there's another thing to consider about this time period. And it goes all the way back to our Halloween episodes this year. This year, I covered Catholic werewolves, as we called it, and looked at the werewolf panic and trials in Germany, in France, and other areas of Europe. And as I was doing the research for this episode, I was floored to see so much crossover. These stories of Christmas cannibals were taking place in a very particular time and a very particular place. A time and place where cannibalism and werewolfism were intricately tied together. And it made me wonder, could all these stories of Christmas cannibals actually be tied back to the werewolf panic of the 1400s? The answer is possibly... So this is a quote from a History.com article called Before America Had Witch Trials, Europe Had Werewolf Trials. Quote, Charges that real people could be menacing werewolves surfaced as part of the witch trials that swept through parts of Europe in the 1400s. Officials in the Valais region of Switzerland conducted large-scale prosecutions, blaming witches for crop failures, lameness, blindness, infertility, and impotence as well as adopting wolf forms and mutilating cattle. According to some accounts, several hundred men and women were convicted and burned at the stake in Valais starting in 1428, often with a sack of gunpowder around their necks. Good lord. Can you imagine they were burned at the stake with a sack of gunpowder around their necks? 
In some ways, that's awful. In other ways, I guess at least once it reached their necks, they went quickly. But also, I mean, by that point, they might have died of asphyxiation from the smoke inhalation. (laughs) Happy Christmas. (laughs) This is the reason for the season. (laughs) So any land that they owned automatically transferred to the local vassal of the king, which may have spurred the accusations. From the Alps, werewolf prosecutions spread to Franche-Comte in Burgundy, a densely forested area where villagers and livestock were easy prey for actual wolves. There, as elsewhere in Europe, political and religious upheavals heightened tensions, and Christianity was struggling to overcome regional pagan traditions, making fertile ground for fanciful accusations according to Rolf Schultz, a German expert on witch and werewolf hunts, in his 2009 book, Man as Witch. In 1521, inquisitors appointed by the Pope presided over several trials of alleged werewolfery. Two shepherds, Pierre Burgot and Michel Verdun, confessed to making a pact with the devil in exchange for food, meeting with a man in black who gave them an ointment that turned them into werewolves, then attending midnight witch gatherings and hunting and eating children. Both were convicted and burned at the stake, along with a third who refused to confess. So, why did I include this very long quote? Well, I really wanted to set the scene for you. During the time of Père Futard and Hans Trapp, something was happening in the countryside coming down from the Alps and sweeping across France and Germany, werewolf trials. And these trials all had similar themes. Many of those themes had to do with the intersection of Christianity and pagan cultures. They also had to do with the intersection of the wild world, the woods, the fields, the mountains, and the town. And we see these being played out in both the stories I told you. In the tale of Père Futard, we get the story of a cannibal, naturally but we also get the protest against a hated Christian emperor by the townspeople. Coincidence, Jenny? I think not. And we see this again in Hans Trapp. Hans Trapp, much like Père Futard, becomes a hated cannibal figure, but he's also someone who stood up to the Christians who were imposing themselves on his land, and the land of the townspeople. And while I certainly don't think he's in the right, it's interesting to see both figures as, perhaps originally, folk heroes or real people who protested against the Christianization of these areas. By turning these men into boogeymen and monsters, it further turned them into tools of Christian oppression. Or propaganda. And made their stories ones of terror and fear to further the Christmas agenda. Eh, yeah, I said that. You're furthering the Christmas agenda every time you get excited about Christmas, Jen. Just think about that. You're a Christmas oppressor. And the other thing I wanted to flag in this episode goes back to the werewolves of it all. Cannibalism pops up all the time in werewolf trials of this era. Werewolves are constantly attacking and killing, usually children. And it makes sense that Hans Trapp and Père Futard would be portrayed as cannibals. And one can even say, in the case of Hans Trapp, proto-werewolves. Look, while Hans Trapp is not technically a werewolf, he does don the clothes of a scarecrow in order to change his shape, hide his identity, and commit horrible crimes. I mean, that's werewolf adjacent, right? And like the stories of the werewolf trials, his justice is divine retribution. In short, Hans Trapp is not just a boogeyman to scare the kids. He's also a real snapshot of what life looked like during this time. He's a creature that could only have been created during the terrors and horrors of the werewolf trials of the 1400s, of the uncertainty of Christianity spreading into new areas, of the intersection of pagan faith and the Christian faith. 
So another thing I want to bring up is an ancient link between werewolf stories, cannibalism, and starving times. When we did our first episode on werewolves in ancient Greece and Rome, which we re-released recently, so you may have heard it again, we really noticed how stories about werewolves from the earliest days from Greece and Rome going back to the BCs included themes of cannibalism, to an extent that we wondered if these werewolf stories may have originated during times of starving and privation and perhaps pointed to a real time when people ate each other, including their own children, to survive. So I asked Jen to look into whether there was a starving time in Bavaria or Germany or France and other affected areas during the time these Christmas cannibals originated, or maybe a little bit beforehand. Are these stories rooted in more ancient folklore that stems from a starving time as far back as 536 AD, or perhaps something more recent? It turns out that the answer is yes, maybe. Right? Yes, but sadly, Jenny, it does not date all the way back to 536 AD. Because everything doesn't stem back to a volcano, as much as it pains me to say this, although it kind of is a little related. There was something that happened in the 1300s that was also devastating and changed the course of history. In Europe, this was called the Great Famine of 1315 to 1317. It's important to note that during this period, there was a worldwide global cooling known as the Little Ice Age. This impacted the world, but also particularly Europe, and it led to cooler summers and harsher winters and a lot more rain for longer periods of time. The famine waged across all of Europe and impacted every area. In particular, it impacted the rural areas where life was very much based on farming. The Great Famine of 1315 was all about devastating rains. These rains washed out crops and led to problems in the food supply chain, meaning widespread starvation. And on the heels of this famine rode another horror, the Black Death. After the famine came the plague. So that by the time you hit the 1400s, well, you'd seen a lot. You'd survived a lot. And if you owned a small farm, you were probably in the red and the minority because of nearly a century of calamities. And to top it all off, there was a labor crisis. Farmers who needed help tilling their fields could hire seasonal and wandering laborers. But laborers at this time were able to charge a lot for their expertise because the demand was so high. And farmers who needed the help had no choice but to hire workers or potentially lose their homes and farms and become subsistence or surf farmers. It was a huge mess. But the changes weren't done because in the 1400s, something new was coming to the fore. And that was a battle in the countryside amongst the nobility and the church. So this is a quote from Britannica.com. Quote, In southern Germany, the strain of transition in rural society was heightened by the policies of the landlords, both lay and ecclesiastical. I mentioned this before. Confronted by labor shortages and rising costs, many landlords attempted to recoup their losses at the expense of their tenants. By means of ordinances passed in the manorial courts, they denied to the peasantry their traditional right of access to commons, common fields, woods, and streams. Further, they revived their demands for the performance of obsolete labor services and enforced the collection of the extraordinary taxes on behalf of the prince. The peasants protested and appealed to custom, but their sole legal recourse was to the manorial court, where their objections were silenced or ignored. Ecclesiastical landlords, the church, 
They were especially efficient, and peasant discontent assumed a strong anti-clerical tinge and gave rise to the localized disturbances in Gotha in 1391, Bregenz in 1407, Rottweil in 1420, and Worms in 1421. Disturbances recurred with increasing frequency in the course of the 15th century on the Upper Rhine, in Alsace, and in the Black Forest. In 1458, a cattle tax imposed by the Archbishop of Salzburg kindled a peasant insurrection, which spread to Styria, Carinthia, Carniola. In Alsace, the malcontents adopted as the symbol of revolt the bunsche, the wooden shoe usually worn by the peasants. They also formulated a series of specific demands, which included the abolition of the hated manorial courts and the reduction of feudal dues and public taxes to a trifling annual amount. On these fundamental points, there was little room for compromise, and the outbreaks were stifled by the heavy hand of established authority. But the rigors of repression added fuel to peasant discontent, which finally burst forth in the Great Uprising of 1524 and 25. Sound familiar? This is almost exactly the story of Hans von Trotha and the abbot. That story was playing itself out over and over again in the countryside as knights and the church battled for control over the small folk, I suppose you could say. It also is very much like Père Fruitard in that second story, the story of uh, George V of Metz, right? Like we've seen this story in the mythology that demonized these guys. Yeah, it's just over and over again. Like there's there's a story about the demonization of popes and and holy Roman emperors, or resistance against popes and holy Roman emperors, and the subsequent demonization of people who stood up to those those elements. Yeah, I'm not saying that these guys were good guys. Like I'm not saying that. I'm just saying it's an interesting. There is something happening here, particularly as Christianity becomes the main religion, and Christianity at this point in time. It's not just Catholicism. We also have Protestantism and Lutherism and and other versions of Christianity are also becoming dominant. They're taking over the pagan beliefs, but there's a a lot of tension going on when we get these folk legends who become part of uh, Father Christmas, St. Nicholas's uh, entourage. And you also have, you know, a backdrop of climate change and starving times when people potentially were in some areas, resorting to cannibalism to survive. I mean, maybe child cannibalism was a thing people really did. Well, we're going to talk about that now, because in the backdrop of all of this, something else was happening. Printing presses, Jenny. Printing presses were taking off. Images, lurid images and stories were starting to be shared across Europe, and in particular, Germany. And they stoked the terror of the common people. The first book printed might have been the Bible, but the first genre of stories that spread widely was true crime. Yeah, it was. This kills me. This kills me. Uh Uh-huh. And that true crime had one particular theme, Jenny. Child cannibalism. Turns out I'm not the only one obsessed with this. I'm just like a German peasant, really, in my tastes and proclivities. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and a lot, please bear in mind that a lot of these would have been, uh, a lot of people wouldn't have been able to read. So this, the actual images that would have been put in the printing press would have been super important, these illustrations, these, like, I guess, wood cuttings that they would have pressed over and over and over again, because that's how people would get the gist of the story. Someone in the group might be able to read, and they might read them the story, or they might make up their own story. Remember, this is a culture of people who, at the time, may or may not have the ability to read due to their circumstances. But sometimes they were having their friends read it to them. Sometimes they were, and their friends may or may not be trustworthy. Do you trust your friends? 
Should you? I mean. I don't trust Jenny as far as I could throw her, but I kind of (laughs) do. That's really fair. I mean. (laughs) So all of that is super important as the background of what's going on at this point in time. We don't come to this time period that often, but again, it's, it's fun to be here for the moment. So this is a quote from an article called Child Murderers Within the <laughs> called Child Murderers Within the Wider Visual Culture of Infanticide and Cannibalism. It was posted on January 2nd, 2022 by Dana Rain. Quote, the prince of infanticide, meaning like prince that you see in the, the printing press, uh, may have also been inspired by the real fears of cannibalism and infanticide heightened during times of famine. The connection between famine with fears of cannibalism of children was further illustrated in a broadsheet of the Livonian War of 1558-83, to 83, where the foreground depicted a man devouring a small baby. Babies are tender and mild. Stop at you. Quote, As this print highlights, children were repeatedly portrayed being consumed whole to accentuate to its audience that an innocent child was being cannibalized and thus emphasizing the depravity of the act. Therefore, the fear surrounding infanticide was fueled by the wider preoccupation of cannibalism. The high child mortality rate during this period possibly explains the interest in such narratives. On average, half of all children would die by the age of 10. However, these numbers reflect European-wide child mortality rates and therefore is not enough to explain the fears and fascination experienced in 16th century Germany. Larry S. Milner stated that infanticide became a serious crime in Germany in comparison to other countries. The introduction of the 1532 Criminal Code, Constitutio Criminalis Carolina, resulted in an increase in infanticide persecutions and became punishable by execution, by beheading, or drowning. However, infanticide similarly became punishable by death across Europe. That statistic, half of all children would die by the age of 10 in this time period, and this is a 10-year-old child being attacked and eaten by the scarecrow, the Christmas cannibal scarecrow. That's why I told you to remember 10. It's like you were here for my quiz. It's like I was paying attention. (laughs) You were, even though you've been drinking. I'm so proud of you. Yes, I wanted you to be here for that because the reality is that number 10 was seared into the psyche. Half of the children at this point in time were not making it past the age of 10. Some of that had to do with the extreme climate change and famines going on. Some of it might have had to do with other things that we don't like to talk about in history. What people might have resorted to during that period in time. Murdering and eating a child in Germany became a crime on the books in the 1500s. Presumably before that it was just an unspoken rule, like generally frowned upon. Or maybe not. I don't know. Look, we're hungry. It's the famine. There's no no official rule against it. The article claims that the fears of child cannibalism were out of proportion with reality. And that might be true of the 1500s, but I'm not so sure that that was the case in the 1300s and 1400s. When the famine hit, when the long cold first took root and starved everyone, and then the Black Death came and all that stuff, and I'm not so sure that children didn't have a lot to fear from their own families and their communities, particularly those children who didn't behave or who were seen as troublemakers, who didn't earn their keep. And as much as it's easy to see Hans Tropp and Per Futarda's villains, 
Could they also be stand-ins for what befell naughty children from their own families or, you know, children who were seen as naughty or who stepped out of line in some way? When the starving times came, it's like, who's the expendable one? That would be the child who didn't earn their keep, the child who was in more trouble, the child who wasn't so good all year as to receive a gift or visit from St. Nicholas. That child was expendable and maybe a liability when resources were scarce. And that's real dark, but it's that's what we're seeing in the lore. It is what we're seeing in the lore. And I'm sorry, that's kind of a downer for Christmas. And if you look at these wild parades, which are still happen today, it may make you think about where all these legends came from and what was happening in that backdrop. Again, I'm still a fan of the Krampus. And now I'm also a fan of Hans Trapp and, and Père Futard and some new stuff that I can't tell you about yet because we're going to talk about them next year. But it is always interesting to un- understand the context of where these stories came from and what might have been happening. Yeah. I mean, look, I'm always going to be a fan of the Christmas cannibals because I love myself a dark Christmas tale. So question for you, Jenny. Okay, ranking the Christmas episodes, which one is your favorite? Oh, that's hard. I love them all for various different reasons, right? I love Yule because of how drunk we got. (laughs) I love Saturnalia because that was a real early one and it was just so much fun. You know, it was just a fun time. I love Mithras because of the Emperor pee drinking wildness of it. I love the Krampus because it's the Krampus, right? You can't not love the Krampus. I gotta say, I gotta say my my gal, Frau Holly. I love her so much, and I think I love her the most because of the connection that you drew. Like, pulling the curtain back and back and back to older and darker versions of the folktales, I was just riveted by that until we got to this cave in, I don't know where it was, Spain or somewhere, of children's bones from 6,000 years ago that spoke to this potential tradition of child cannibalism and ritual that we've lost the real story for but like that folklore is still there on top of that and I think that's just such an amazing testament to how folklore works and what it covers up and I'm always riveted by that always I thought you were gonna say Frau Holly I really love her too I usually do all of our Christmas episodes with the exception of Janice I also stand with you with Frau Holly. I really love Yule because of how drunk we got and uh, obviously the Krampus. But these cannibals, I have to say, there's something that as we peel back the layers, as we look at the fear that was being mongered in the press, as we look at the intersection of both pagan and Christian cultures, as we look at the starving times, this is going to hold a special place for me. And I do feel like we've been laying the foundation for this since all the way back, you know, there's elements of werewolves here, there's elements of Yule here, there's elements of Saturnalia here. Like, it goes all the way back to that. One of the things that I talk about all the time and I compliment Jenny on is usually Jenny works, sorry, not usually, always Jenny works much further ahead of me and my brain, just the way it is, fires a little differently. And Jenny usually lays out the arc of the season while I'm still being like, what are we doing a season? What are we doing? But what happens is because Jenny works so well and she's always so far ahead of me, she kind of inadvertently lays out all of these connections for me to find. Jenny started the season. She brought everything together. And then we did our Catholic werewolves. And then I was able to pull through all of these themes into our final episode of the season, which is our Christmas episode. I am so happy with how this has come full circle for our odds and sods season that I didn't think would mix together. I mean, you're the one who's done all of the Christmas episodes, so I don't think it's really fair to say that I was the architect of all of that. But you were of the season with the cult of the severed head and everything else. All these connections I made were because of the work that you already laid out in the season. We'll just 
call it a mutual effort. Okay, I'm here for that. So the next time you're enjoying your Christmas hot cocoa with whiskey, because if you have my family, you're definitely drinking whiskey in your hot cocoa, spare a thought for the Christmas cannibals and the weird and wild history that brought them from the Middle Ages into the modern world as creatures of terror and also order as the light and dark sides to the season. So that's it for this week. We'll see you all next week. And in the meantime, follow us on social media. If you've attended a parade featuring Krampus, Perkta, Perfutard, Hans Trapp, please let us know. Send us pictures. I would love to see that. Oh, yes. Please send us pictures. I'm so excited. I want to hear all about it. Yeah, you can find us on social media at Ancient History Fangirl on Instagram, which is where we're the most active. You can also find us under that name on Facebook, Threads, and TikTok, although we're not really on TikTok or Threads that much. We really should, you know, up our game there. We're still, you know, haunting the dregs of Twitter at Ancient Hist Fan, and we have some Patreon members to thank, don't we, Jen? We do, and we say this every episode, but I'm going to say this again. Patreon is the reason that you get to listen to this podcast every single week. Our patrons are the reason that we're able to continue making this podcast. They are the support that we need to keep literally our lights on and ourselves in our homes and, you know, paying our rent. So we cannot thank them enough. And we do have some patrons to thank. If you would like to sign up for our Patreon, it's patreon.com slash ancient history fangirl. You can get extra episodes. Sometimes we do videos. We do random deep dives into other things we didn't get to cover in our longer episodes and, you know, various stuff. You would love it. Be a good Christmas cannibal or whatever and become a patron. Be a good Christmas cannibal. Yo, Saturnalia us and become a patron. Yo, Saturnalia. Sign up for our Patreon. Eat your children. I'm not going to say Krampus knows if you don't become a patron, but he does. The goat knows what you did and what you didn't do. So we have some good Christmas cannibals to thank, don't we, Jen? Uh Uh-huh. And if they don't want to be called Christmas cannibals, we have some good patrons to thank this week. Apologies to anyone whose name we mispronounce. We hope we don't. Thank you so much to Mary Kowalski, Kara Koffel, Brooke Tulos, Kendra B., and a lady homesteader. Thank you so much. Happy holidays. We hope you have a wonderful holiday. Remember the reason for the season. <laughs> and we will see you next week. <laughs> Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.